May I suggest that we float the buoy, sir? Very well, float the buoy. Float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy. Keep it a watch, float the buoy, 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 float the buoy. Keep it a watch, float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy. Welcome to the greatest generation, a Star Trek podcast. You ever watch Star Trek? By two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast, who are today doing a Crimson Tide podcast. I'm your host, Adam Pranica. I'm your other host, Ben Harrison. Crimson Tide is canonical Trek, right? You ever watch Star Trek? I think in a number of ways it is, Ben. Star Trek, you know Star Trek and USS Enterprise. The one way that Crimson Tide really departs from Trek is that the characters have interpersonal conflicts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One way that the that the movie is almost exactly like uh, Next Generation is that we have just as much concern about female characters <laughs> in both. Uh, before we get too deep into our useless Marin Open here, Adam, we should spend a moment thanking the people that made this happen. This is a bonus episode that we got to do because we reached over 2,000 new and upgrading donors during the max fund drive and uh if you are one of those donors listening now like this this one's for you thank you i am so grateful for the support and i'm so happy that we get to do this show yeah i think it's great Go yeah it's so cool and i mean like this will uh other people will hear this like there'll be uh, depending on depending on how it goes out, like there will be people who donate to other Max Fun shows that maybe hear it also. Uh, so welcome. This isn't what we normally do, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we'll we'll try and do as much of a greatest gen as we can on Crimson Tide. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, our regular podcast, uh, The Greatest Generation, has been sort of an adjunct. Uh, Crimson Tide podcast. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably not that many clips from this movie that we haven't worked into uh, (laughs) a sound drop or two on on Greatest Gen. Yeah. Ben, one of the things I wanted to ask you is why you like this movie so much, because I I love this movie, and I've watched it dozens and dozens of times, but Simpson Bruckheimer were cranking these out for a period of like a dozen years, like the coke-fueled Simpson Bruckheimer years of like machismo and fighter planes and submarines and like some really gung-ho military fun. This movie and many of these Simpson-Bruckheimer joints, to me, really feel a lot like Star Trek The Next Generation in that it's like getting into a pair of sweats at the end of the day (laughs) and like just tucking into something that is comfy and you know exactly what it's going to be. I mean, like for a long time, Star Trek The Next Generation was just kind of my background noise. Like if I was sitting around the house doing nothing, I would just have an episode on and I might be like also playing a game on my phone or cleaning the house or cooking something. And I like wouldn't even be able to see the TV, but it would just be kind of my my nice uh, comforting background noise. It and is. It's to you what Grey's Anatomy is to my wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I have this movie and Hunt for Red October on my iPad at all times, and <laughs> if I'm ever on an airplane and I'm not nuts about the in-flight movie selections, I've always got a great fallback, you know? I am and I have been for a long time over physical media when it comes to movies, Yeah, but 
Crimson Tide is a Blu-ray that I own. One of maybe <laughs> one of maybe the ten Blu-ray movies that I own physically, and I think there's a good reason to like. Man, this uh, this film is 20 years old and it looks amazing. It looks great. It is. It's beautiful. The sound is awesome. It it totally achieves what it sets out to to do. I think you can knock the Simpson Bruckheimer oeuvre. In a lot of ways, but I think what you can't do is knock Tony Scott because there's a timelessness to his storytelling and his way of doing it that I think is like it looks as contemporary as ever. It totally flies today. It looks mm-hmm. like a modern film today. And I think that's a credit to him. Yeah, like the color and the and the crispness of everything is super modern feeling it like it. It almost previsages the way movies are shot now. Yeah. It's funny you say you own the the Blu-ray, Adam, because when I sat down to rewatch this for our pod today, I was shocked to discover that the copy that I owned was the SD version. So I, I upgraded to the HD version before watching it today. But I think that's also a credit to how good it looks, you know, like a, yeah. a really good looking movie doesn't necessarily need to be the highest resolution to hold your attention. And uh, I think that... Uh, that is very true of this. Well, it's important to have the HD version, Ben, because as you can see from the movie poster, you have your Denzel Washington name above the title, your Gene Hackman name above the title, and the word sweat above the title. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The three the three triple threats of this movie. This is the the first and only nomination that Sweat has gotten as a <laughs> as a supporting character. <laughs> You want to get into it, Ben? Let us get in. All right. Well, here we go. Let's uh, set condition 1SQ for <laughs> Crimson Tide. Little ducks, there's trouble in Russia. So they called us. So they called us. There's trouble in Russia. So they called us. Little ducks. The opening of this movie is like the most bonery text on screen of all time. <laughs> it's like the three most powerful men in the world. The President of the United States, the President of the Russian Federation, and the Captain of a U.S. nuclear submarine. You know, we talk all the time in Greatest Gen about, like, the pre-credit sequence, that that cold open. They use that cold open with varying degrees of success, right? And I think we praise it most of the time uh, when it's efficient and and shocking and attention-grabbing. And I think Crimson Tide does it really well here it's super efficient we've got the text on screen but we also have this richard valeriani on the ship doing his his hit for cnn right and in three minutes we know everything about the story it's great yeah there's a lot of setup to this story it's very high concept there's like uh bad ultra nationalist russians doing bad stuff and one of them has like seized a series of Russian bases and there's like a real nuclear threat going on and <laughs> and like we get that all set up and uh, we smash cut to kids at a birthday party which is like the most Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer smash cut perhaps in the entire Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer of is is a uh, is smash cut from the scariest news in the world to kids at a birthday party yeah, and and what preserves the continuity is the hazer 
in the room for the for the magic show like it still looks real moody oh man uh, <laughs> yeah when you're when you're filming indoors and you and you use the and you use the smoke machine to just fill the space with <laughs> with haze like this i mean i would say that if you want to knock any imagery in this film for being radically dated any everything that happens before they get into the submarine has some of that going on because there's also like a meeting where the you know all the station chiefs and the captain and like an admiral like meet up in in like a ready room to go over you know what the what the threat is what their mission is going to be commander-in-chief has directed u.s military forces to set defcon 4 and it looks like they bounced all of the lights in the room off of the surface of a swimming pool. No, that's it. And it's like, <laughs> why? They're in like a classroom. Like, it makes no sense. You know, th- this is going to sound cutting, but it's all production designed to death. Like, there's so much thought in every composition. There's nothing neutral about any scene. And you get this a little later in the submarine, too. Like, a submarine is a series of straight lines, but all the angles are dutched. Like, all the movements are angular. Like, they really do a great job in in keeping the composition exciting and fresh every time. Yeah, and, like, one thing we'll often criticize about TNG is when an episode kind of doesn't stand on its own convictions. It, yeah. It is a great show, but it is occasionally a little bit mealy-mouthed about the point it wants to get across uh, or the choice a character is making. And that is that never happens one single time in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you remember when nationalism was bad, Ben? <laughs> it's uh, a good thing we got that fixed. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is like, I mean, like Bill Clinton is president in this movie. Yeah. Like the U.S. Navy is doing something that is scary, but like kind of what we want them to do, you know? Yeah. Like, we want them to be a deterrent for bad, bad people doing bad, bad things. And, uh, and, and like, that's what, uh, that's what the, the ship is for. But it's also described by Gene Hackman as, like, the most lethal killing machine ever devised, which is uh, a, not an untrue statement, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of the divisions in the crew really fall on either side of that line. Either you bristle at the idea or you welcome that idea into your life, you right. know, as someone who serves aboard that ship. Either either we put on this condom to fuck or we put on this condom so that people would be scared we want to fuck. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's how that line of dialogue went. <laughs> Yeah, uh, if that if that character had been more equivocal in a TNG kind of way, maybe he would have said it that way. If Ben Tarantino had written that piece of dialogue and not Quentin, <laughs> that's how it would have gone. Yeah, that that is. Uh, I I was joking with our our buddy Law Threeper on Twitter today uh, that you can almost see like Quentin Tarantino's face just pop up in the lower right hand corner of the screen every time a, a piece of Tarantino dialogue happens dick glass dick glass dick glass be the glass dick glass dick glass dick glass yeah like MST3K style he just yeah. like <laughs> there's that episode of South Park and they just count how many times they say shit in the yeah. episode 
and I kind of just want to have like a like a Tarantino's face and a counter. Like this should be like a DVD special feature where you hit a button and yeah. this can come up, and it's just Tarantino's face and a little counter every time something he wrote is uttered. Who played the German sub commander in the enemy below at Robert Mitchum? Was it Kurt Jurgens or Hardy Kruger? Sir. Wrong answer! Drop down and give me 20! You know, in many ways, for a long time, Quentin had the best job in Hollywood, where he would get punch-up duty on stuff like this. Well, I said that the Kirby Silver Surfer was the only real Silver Surfer, and that the Mobius Silver Surfer was shit. And I think you and I have talked about this as it pertains to Star Trek. Like, I don't necessarily want to be in a writer's room full-time, but lordy, wouldn't it be great to just do punch-ups on scripts? Oh, man. (laughs) It would be fantastic. It would be good stuff. This magic scene in the beginning is all about establishing how close Hunter and Weps are. And, and Weps is played by Vigo Mortensen, yeah. a young... Iron Jaw, Steely Vigo Mortensen, who is no less the movie star then as he is now. It's amazing how much nobody realized what a movie star he was. Like, he has a, a small but pivotal part in this movie, and I, I feel like he just fucking dominates every frame he gets in, you know? Like, he the, looks uh, amazing, he, yeah. he chews on, on the edges of the scene. It's a real tour de force, and I don't think I realized... Like, I think I went back and watched this movie after Lord of the Rings came out, and I was like, oh, fuck, you know? Yeah. Oh, there's that guy. I think it's a credit to how great of an actor he is that he's so great, he doesn't stand out. Like, he just looks like he belongs at all times. One of the ways I felt like he did attract maybe some wrong attention is, like... He sort of takes over the magic show and then, like, smokes a cigarette out of his mouth, but also a cigarette out of the dimple in his chin. (laughs) That was weird. (laughs) That is one deep chin dimple, Ben. I mean, you could just, you could keep a spare cigarette in there if you want. That's a deep, deep dim. (laughs) If you were, um, if you were going to smuggle something aboard a, a nuclear submarine, you want a dimple like that to hide it in, you know? If Viggo Mortensen ever had to go to prison, like, they'd have to do the butt check, but I think you also have to do the chin check, too, on him. Mm-hmm. The contraband. There's, uh, there's more than one cavity search on Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> the, uh, the, the TV is on in the background at this, uh, at this party, and they're, they've got, like, CNN going, and there's that classic, like, uh, Viggo goes to Denzel. Is this uh, is this as bad as it looks? And uh, and the the phone rings and Vigo's pager goes off. Vigo looks down at his pager and it just says boobless. <laughs> <laughs> like that is such a '90s plot beat that it's almost. It's like they watched Navy Seals twenty minutes before and they were like, "Well, that's a good open. Why don't we just use that one?" So they get the call and it's like it, it's not super dissimilar from a fire department getting the getting the call like they're being scrambled essentially but yeah that can't happen before Denzel officially gets hired because he's an officer and he's up for an XO position the uh the number one of a nuclear submarine but the I guess the Alabama the ship that this 
this takes place on lost an exo to uh, appendicitis and so uh, captain ramsey is like looking for somebody to fill in and denzel's name is on the top of the list it was a short list so they do that perfunctory sort of job interview and we've got in the room ramsey hunter and then cobb who sort of stands at the corner of the desk between them I probably had to watch this movie 20 times before I realized that Cobb is an acronym. They only ever call him Cobb. <laughs> right. But yeah. There is some tension established right here in this interview because Denzel is a lettered officer. Like he's done Annapolis, he's done Harvard, he has a certain pedigree. And I think that Gene Hackman's character, Ramsey, is, you know, impressed by that, but I think also a little bit threatened by it like he definitely sees denzel as being part of a new generation of officer in the submarine corps that is distinctly different from him rickover gave me my command a checklist a target and a button to push all i had to know is how to push it they tell me when they seem to want you to know why i would hope they'd want us all to know why sir and sees him as the new guard that is going to, to you know, wipe his his guard away. Yeah, and I think he tr- he sincerely believes that his own Harvard was war. As one of the the few remaining submarine captains with with wartime experience, like I think he's impressed to the point of intimidation a little bit. I also feel like he is confident in his abilities as a veteran submarine captain that he's got some of his own shit too yeah he went to the school of hard knocks he took night classes like he's not fucking around there's no like weakness in his position but you know like he he sees he sees the writing on the wall you know he sees where the navy wind is blowing and so uh you know it what it takes is uh his little his little dog to sign off on commander hunter for Captain Ramsey to uh, to feel really comfortable with Denzel coming aboard the boat. Did you know Jack Russells were born black? <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird scene because they spend a, a good portion of it talking about how dumb horses and high school girls are, are and how smart Jack Russells are. <laughs> you really pick your side in that scene. Yeah, you also see the the Tarantino head pop up and count up a couple of numbers, you know. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't mix their metaphors there, like Farley and Tommy Boy about getting a good look at a butcher's ass. He's like, the thing about a Jack Russell Terrier is they're dumb as rocks, but they know every high school boy wants to fuck them. <laughs> like, I wonder how many times they botched the line reading in that scene before moving on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you can get a good look at a high school girl's ass by sticking your head in a Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> there is so much setup in this movie that it's almost unbelievable because there's like there's like another scene where Denzel has to say goodbye to his family and you know, like this is a pretty important beat in a in a war film which is like show you know, who they're fighting for kind of kind of a deal. Yeah. But then they cut to the scene where Captain Ramsey is just giving this like totally insane grandiloquent speech in the in the pouring rain with like sparks raining down behind him and the boat like, you know, rim lit in the rain. Where did the sparks come from? Are they still putting together the sub? 
<laughs> I think it's just like one of those Jerry Bruckheimer tropes. Like it, it totally reminded me of the fight scene in Con Air when Nick Cage is like using his hands that should be registered as deadly weapons to beat up the right. thugs outside the bar. And there's just yeah. like fire in the background for no reason. <laughs> so... There's a couple of notes on this scene that I think are germane to some of the choices that were made for this scene. The sub they use is a 50s-era decommissioned submarine. Really? That that did not have a conning tower on it. And so the reason that they couldn't shoot with or on a real submarine was because the Navy was not a willing participant in this film. (laughs) And the reason for that is because the production crew, including producers Tony Scott and a few others, uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer, went and asked the Navy for a ride-along, like much like you can get a ride-along from a police officer in a in a squad car. Yeah. And the Navy was like, sure, that sounds great. What's your movie about? And Tony Scott's <laughs> like, get this. The movie is about a submarine captain who is in command of a sub and the computer takes control of the missiles and the conflict is about how you you shut off a sub with a mind of its own and the navy's like well that's interesting that could never happen come on aboard and and like see how we do shit <laughs> so they go on a ride along they they film a bunch of stuff inside like for scouting like they sort of do a like a bulked up tech scout it sounds like They check it out. They're capturing footage. They're interviewing people. Like, it's a really, like, a fully developed couple of days. Yeah. So they go out there. They do all this research. They come back. And then uh, he starts talking to the Navy again. And the Navy's like, great. Did you get everything you needed? Tony Scott's like, sure thing. That was awesome. (laughs) By the way, our movie is about uh, a captain and an XO fighting over a strategic nuclear missile launch. And the Navy's like... (laughs) Long silence on the phone. <laughs> Navy's like, yeah, actually, we, uh, we're we not really interested in helping you tell that story. That's not really a good look <laughs> for us. And Tony Scott's like, dude, I made Top Gun. Like, I recruited personally 50,000 people for the Navy. Like, <laughs> like, do me a solid here. And the Navy's like, no, I'm sorry. Uh, we can't help you. So Tony Scott's like... Well, Scott and Simpson and Bruckheimer are like, we are fucked. Like, we have a submarine movie to make and we need a sub. So, (laughs) this is fucked up, Ben. (laughs) They're like, what we need more than anything is this submerging sequence. How do we get it without the Navy's agreement? We need the submerging sequence and we need the scene next to the sub. They're like, okay, well, we got the sequence in the rain with the sparks. We're going to find a decommissioned submarine that's been sold for scrap. And we're going to build a conning tower on top of it. We're going to shoot outside of that. Great. Like, check that box. We got that scene. But the submerging scene, they looked into the legality of shooting a active Navy submarine Without going permission. out on patrols and submerging. And they're like, well, there's actually no legal reason why we can't go out in helicopters and speedboats <laughs> after a submarine that's left pearl and shoot it submerging Holy so that's shit. what they did what? they went out in helicopters and film boats and stayed like a safe distance but they shot with telephoto lenses and shot a live submarine submerging and that's what they used in the film holy like, shit isn't that fucking crazy that's 
bonkers. <laughs> so all of the externals on the sub look amazing and beautiful because a one of them was stolen, really. And and two, the scene in the rain with the sparks is so obscured by everything else on set that like it totally reads. Yeah, it's a miracle that they got footage as great as they did because they didn't get to like get second takes, I imagine. But um, yeah, they they shot a couple of different subs, and like part of the knock on that scene is like, yeah, there's the it's the wrong type of sub, and they show two different ones. But for the production constraints that they had, like I. <laughs> There are such small scale things that you and me run into as video producers that would just kill a production. And I feel like one of them would be the main physical actor, like the setting for the film being unavailable would be a really big fucking problem. (laughs) And the balls it takes to just go, you know what? We're just going to go get it. We're going to go get it. And that's what they did. Repeat my command. Sir, sir, we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have could have changed. Mr. Hunter, I've made the decision. I'm captain. I'm captain. I'm captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up! The Alabama, the uh, submarine in question, is putting to sea amid this Vladimir Rachenko's uh, uprising in Russia. And what's happened is Rachenko has taken control of a submarine base and a like a Nike site or whatever the Russian equivalent of that is. So they've he's got like 25 missiles with 10 warheads apiece that he can launch and they're being they're being extra cautious cuz they don't think that he has the launch codes for these missiles missiles but uh you know they don't want to run the risk of having their pants down if he if he compromises those launch codes. So they put to sea and they're basically they're basically being told like be ready to shoot like the you are you are not going out here on a pleasure cruise like you may in fact need to launch your fucking missiles and and so like the captain has has a lot on his shoulders and the first thing he does is call a missile readiness test con radio we are receiving flash traffic emergency action message recommend alert one recommend alert one right after there's a huge fire in the galley and um, if I had to, if I had to call out one of the best scenes, I think this is this is one of them. It it takes a Simpson Bruckheimer trope and turns mm-hmm. it on its head, which is in almost every Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer film, there is a chase scene, like a car chase or something like yeah. that, and yeah. there is always intercut between the action of the chase scene and some peaceful thing that we know that the chase will inevitably upset. You know, like in Speed, it's like a lady pushing a, a baby carriage. Uh, in uh, Enemy of the State, it's like a wheelchair basketball team crossing the street. Like, it, yeah. it's, there's always something, and we're like cutting to it, and we're like, why are we cutting to this peaceful thing when this exciting car chase is happening? And then the car chase goes right through the middle of it. The bus hits the baby carriage, turns out to be cans. Uh, in this movie, right. it is... Lieutenant Commander Ron Hunter using the ship for a jog, and it's intercutting a crazy galley fire. Like, <laughs> the whole fucking galley is fully on fire. The uh, the galley fire is a big deal, and I guess as XO, like, he is in charge of, like, making sure it gets dealt with. So he, like, puts on his his firefighting gear and does like a shoulder roll over one of the metal tables and hits the button that turns on the, uh, 
flame retardant spray. It's they're like they're like just wiping the sweat off their brow when the captain calls this missile drill. Uh, one of the guys who was in the mess hall during the fire, he's not doing so great. Yeah, he's a little, he's a little bit coffee, a little bit gaggy. Mm-hmm. They're checking him out. The comms guy Zimmer like triggers the missile drill on the captain's orders, and he and the uh, and one of the other guys like walk walk their emergency action message about the drill up to the captain. And Hunter is like late to the party because he's racing from the galley fire back to the uh, control room, and like you know stripping stripping all his firefighting gear off it as he runs and uh, he gets there just in time to like help authenticate the message i agree message is authentic and they're like running this drill and he keeps trying to kind of like inject into the into the conversation like hey by the way like we're not totally out of danger w slash r slash t (laughs) galley fire so let's keep uh let's keep an eye on that and the captain is fucking pissed that he's doing this and then uh and then six bay radios up to Khan, and they're like uh we've got a medical emergency down here uh because the guy we saw before who was struggling after the fire he actually has had a heart attack and we're we're giving him the paddles right now it's not great you know how there was some foreshadowing about that black guy yeah we need to have the black dude die first because this is the 90s and this is jerry bruckheimer the black guy has come home to roost <laughs> it's so fucking racist like yeah. even in a fucking denzel movie in this era the black dude dies first yeah it's fucking crazy at, at at a certain point in the 90s, Denzel became the number one American movie star and, yeah. and has, in my, in my view, like retained that title uh, up yeah, until no the present. Yeah, no one's taken the belt from him. No way. Like, he's the top. There's an entire podcast about this. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I can't imagine Denzel didn't have some feelings about this. Like, there's a story on IMDb about him... Having a having words with Tarantino when Tarantino visited the set about the way Tarantino depicted black people in his films, yeah, like and yeah. and specifically calling Tarantino out on overusing the N word, which is like calling another artist out on something that you find inappropriate is not an easy move to make, even in private and. He basically did it, like, in front of the whole crew on set. Like, Denzel put him on blast in front of everybody. It's an interesting time in Hollywood because you are rightly calling attention to this trope at the time. It's happening at the same time where Denzel is sort of realizing, you know, like, an apex actor moment in his career, like... He has he has ascended and he is the man. He is the best actor in this film and it's not close. Yeah. Among other great actors even. And it it does make me wonder if he had an opportunity or an inclination to as easily call out this moment as he was able to call out the moment for Tarantino. It's it's an interesting choice and uh the upshot of it is that this dude buys the farm. There's also a pretty amazing scene where all the officers are having dinner in the officers' mess, and uh, and some von Clausewitz debate takes place. I think when you are in high school and you want to start and you want to sound smart when you're talking about war matters, 
Joppen von Clauschwitz is <laughs> is the way to do that yeah. for sure. All you got to do is read like the first two paragraphs on the Wikipedia entry and uh yeah. you'll probably have something to say. This is a great dinner scene. You get the captain, the exo, you get Zimmer who is played by Matt Craven who is like a recognizable that guy. Uh Vigo is in the room and also James Gandolfini. Yeah. A svelte younger James Gandolfini and another reminder of the breadth of his career. Yeah. Who, I mean, who is in a number of Simpson Bruckheimer movies. He sure is. Yeah. He's in, um, this reminded me that he was also in Tony Scott slash Quentin Tarantino's, uh, true romance. Yeah. Yeah. As a similarly psychotic character. Like, and I think that maybe this movie, he plays it a little more psycho than, I might have wanted. Yeah. Like his, his character is by far the most unhinged, but he is so charismatic and it's, it's a, it's no surprise that he had a long and illustrious career after this. They make some choices with this character that are so much more than just bit character choices. Like you, you get that scene on the bus where they're loading in <laughs> yeah. to to board the submarine, and Gandolfini just owns this scene. Like a younger crewman gets on the bus and like is a little too casual with Gandolfini, and Gandolfini just like tears into him. How you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Good. Address me as sir when you speak to me. Stand at attention, sailor. It's a great scene for a character that we will really not know throughout the movie but we'll know him just enough yeah like little moments to shine i feel like are what simpson bruckheimer films are about they give six lines of dialogue to a minor character and you just know who they are yeah this uh this dinner scene is super tense like it is piano wire tense and the conversation is basically about the difference of opinion between Denzel and Hackman over what they're there to do. And it centers around this quote from von Clausewitz, who was like a, I don't know what, like the 19th century warrior slash philosopher. Yeah, he's uh, he's like the Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse of, <laughs> of war scholars. Yeah, he says that the true nature of war is that pain don't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he says the true nature of war is to serve itself, and um, this leads Denzel to uh, reveal his opinion that... In the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. This is really like the inciting incident of the film. This is where their discord begins. It's also where you begin to see the split among the crew. They're on two separate sides of the table... You get some shots of everyone involved and their relative agreement or disagreement yeah. with that line. It's all wordless. Uh, and I sort yeah. of want, like, Hackman's is by far the most nuanced, wordless performance in this scene. Do you think that what he is putting out is, I disagree based on who I am and what I do, but deep down I'm worried you might be right? I never saw his thinking as that nuanced in this moment. I thought he was sort of running a a bit on the XO. Like I think he was trying to draw him out in a way that 
you know, perhaps the job interview was incomplete and the, the interview continues while on the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vigo does something really interesting here in soft focus in the background as Denzel Washington delivers his line about the, the enemy of war. And uh, he nods in agreement. Like you can, you can see him just barely, but like, you know what side he's on in that moment as well. And that's a moment that will be revisited later on. That's something for for the dozens of times I've watched this movie I didn't notice until this time. Yeah. Do you think one of the ways this movie is canonical Star Trek is because uh, the unhinged Russian antagonist has the last name Roshenko? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably part of it. Do you think that explains a lot? That's a that's a wharf ancestor. It would explain why the rebels have such a hard time opening up the launch bay doors for <laughs> the missiles. Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck! Shut the fuck! Shut the fuck up! You know, like the captain and and the EXO have a little conversation about how much they disagree about the mush- mis- missile drill being run during all that. Um, they get an EAM. Con radio receiving emergency action message. Recommend alert one. Recommend alert one. That says basically like the Russians have the codes. Like shit is f- fucking melting down up here. Moscow in flames. Missiles headed toward New York. Film at eleven. Uh, we're we're going to DEFCON three. Be ready to shoot them off basically at a moment's notice. With this in mind, they first encounter one of the Russian attack subs. So, like, if uh, if Red October is the Atlantic Ocean Russian submarine movie, this is the Pacific Ocean Russian submarine movie in my mind. Right. The deal, basically, is that this is a missile boat, so it's like a big, fat boat, you know, and it can defend itself, but mostly it's there to carry around huge missiles that can take entire cities out. And attack subs are a lot nimbler and more maneuverable. So if you're if you're in a situation where you've got one missile boat and one attack boat, you you probably don't want to pick a fight if you're the missile boat, right? Yeah, and it would seem that if you if you're the attack sub, you're harder to detect, and if you're the missile boat, you're so much larger that you're probably easier to read. Yeah, so they're they're like trying to evade this sub, but they they're going so deep that they can't they can't uh, receive radio messages anymore. Essentially, like the the ocean is too is too much interference, and this is a an intense scene because they've gotten their orders to set condition one SQ, which means like fuel up your missiles and shoot them. Like you have a target package, go ahead and shoot. And and basically, Captain Ramsey is like is basically he's basically waiting out the attack sub until he can get to launch depth. One of the characters we meet in this moment is Rivetti, who I feel like is one of the emotional cores of the film. Like he sort of teaches the audience when to be scared, when to be excited, when things are dangerous and when they're safe. Which Silver Surfer is the good one and which one is the bad one? Well, I said that the Kirby Silver Surfer was the only real Silver Surfer and that the Mobius Silver Surfer was shit. Right. We're learning a lot from him. Um, yeah, he's the sonar man. He's he's telling them, you know, when torpedoes are in the water, what's uh, what's going on with that Akula class sub, and uh, 
Meanwhile, Denzel is like, What do you think? We received a, a, a bit of a message that has something to do with the order that we have to launch these fucking missiles. And I really am curious to see what the message is. And uh, and Hackman is, is not in. Like, he's, he's like, I think there's nothing on this. Let's launch the missiles first, and then we can find out about your radio thing. But right now, like, I have an attack sub breathing down my neck and orders to launch. May I suggest that we float the buoy so we have enough cable? That should give us enough reach to receive the EAM transmission. They float it. Chief of the watch, float the buoy. Buoy starts making noise and atta- attracts the Akula. They uh, they have a little torpedo fight with the Akula, and they're like they bar- barely get away uh, with their buoy fucked up and all of their radios blown. Uh, when Hackman is like, "Let's launch these fucking missiles and get the fuck out of here," and Denzel's like, no, dude, we have like we have a half printed out piece of paper that says there's somebody trying to tell us something at strategic command. Let's figure out what that is and then maybe launch the missiles or probably not. Now, it's our duty not to launch until we can confirm. At this point, we realize that the radio might be the second most important device on a submarine. Yeah. Besides the thing that makes the air, you know? Yeah. It is so, like, crazy to think about something with this destructive capability being cut off. Yeah. And, and like, keeping its fangs in that scenario. What makes the conflict so great is the rightness of both characters. Like, they're both arguing sides of this issue that seem completely reasonable. Captain Ramsey's like, We're all very well aware of what our orders are and what those orders mean. They come down from our commander-in-chief. They contain no ambiguity. One thing that he deep down understands is, like, everybody on this ship has basically been asked to be a party to killing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, if the ship does the thing that the ship is capable of doing. Yeah. And that's a big ask, so let's make them, make them feel like grown-ups are making that call and they can feel 100% confident in, in them doing the right thing if, if, the, if the ship actually does launch. What's hard about the appeal that Hunter's making is that he's saying, yeah, but. He's like, yes, uh, buy the book every time is the way we should do it, but the asterisks on this has to be the mission that we're being asked to do. It's not like we want to break protocol to change course of the boat. He's he's trying to make the case that, you know, in certain circumstances, you should want to quintuple check this instead of just quadruple check it. He he even makes the argument like like the target package could have changed. Like we don't yeah we don't know what this message is. You know yeah. What if it's everything goes to Moscow because like they're shooting him out of the sky and we just need like strength and numbers right now. Yeah. And I think that's important too. It's not that Denzel Washington has got cold feet about the idea of killing the enemy. It's, it's that the mission may be flawed. This scene gets ratcheted up to 11 on the tension scale and Hackman really like breaks, like his character um, stops being the, the confident and measured captain of the submarine, and he really, like, flips out. You repeat this order, or I'll find somebody who will. Basically, like, with this with this emotional 
boiling over. Denzel's character determines that Hackman is no longer really fit to command this submarine under the uh, under the circumstances and like and the reason he's boiling over his he's saying like you need to confirm my thing and like turn your key and and like this is expressly why your command must be repeated it requires my assent i do not give it and hackman's inability to acknowledge the validity of that they're fueling their missiles we don't have time to fuck around causes him to go completely ape and so he he accuses Denzel of mutiny, and Denzel's like, I'm not doing mutiny, I'm doing my job, and I am going to have to relieve you of command because you're completely out of line. Captain Ramsey's under arrest. Lock him in his stateroom. It just explodes. It's good stuff, and it ends with Denzel asking Cobb to take Hackman under arrest. Now, Cobb! A couple of uh, blue jumpsuits grab Hackman and take him to his stateroom and, like, lock him up. And they have one of those great, like, action movie exchanges. Like, what are we doing, man? Shut the fuck, shut the fuck, shut the fuck up! So, uh, so just as, as Ramsey goes under lock and key, the attack sub shows back up. And, uh, and there's a pretty great, like, submarine combat scene where the they like tangle with this attack sub they they evade a bunch of torpedoes manage to fire back and take it out but not before the attack sub gets off one last shot so they're you know like they're not destroyed but they are like badly disabled by this last torpedo and this they've uh they've tried to dive to like get out of the way but one of the things it does is knock out their propulsion so the ship is sinking and uh it's approaching hull crush depth as they scramble to get you know the holes plugged and the and the propulsion back online i think this is a scene where Cobb really shines and the actor who plays him uh makes some great choices this is a moment to freak out and there's an almost like resigned like sobriety to the way Cobb reads the the uh, increasing depth of the ship. Passing 1,650 feet. Until finally, once they reach crush depth, like, he's almost just numb. 1825. This dude is such a good character actor. Only surpassed by Gene Hackman in what he does wordlessly in this film. Because so much of the time, he's just kind of caught in the middle when Hackman and Denzel are arguing. But they always get his reaction shot, and it also always speaks volumes about what he's yeah. going through. So, like, this is the scene where Denzel has to order somebody to like seal up the hatch, and Steve Zahn takes a takes a metal plate to the face. Goes down in the water. Like it seems like every scene, every turn, you're finding another either actor on the cusp or like rookie brought up to the big league style actor that's just starting their career like you got your rick schroeder you got your steve zahn man ryan phillippe's in the movie is he really his his first film no way yeah he's the guy at the fish tank he's also in in the background of a number of scenes too. yeah yeah i mean zahn really does a lot with with the small small character that he has and um and yeah, like I, he might have three lines in the film, four. Um, totally makes an impression. 
like in everything Steve Zahn does, you can't help but love him. There's like an inherent humanity to the way he is that just works. Yeah. Do you think that this movie is more or less real time after the first EAM is received? It's very relentless. And so like the rest of the movie is this kind of series of back and forth square, like Denzel takes out the Akula and then Gandolfini like breaks Hackman out of, out of the brig they they get a bunch of guys together and they f- convince Vigo to join them and they like take the ship back over and and Denzel gets locked up and then Denzel has to take the ship back over <laughs> it's like it's like it's a it's a little bit of a like a like a cat and mouse thing i guess you know it it sounds derivative when you describe it but when you watch the movie it doesn't feel that way at all no and I think Vigo winds up having the most to go through because he's like recruited by the the take back over the ship club. We gotta have Webs, he's the key. And then Denzel kind of re-recruits him to the let's not launch these missiles until we know what's going on side. Webs, listen, don't do this. Don't do this. Once you launch, they cannot come back. They cannot come back, Webs, and you know the repercussions if we're wrong, goddammit. The moment that is almost as tense as Hunter relieving Ramsey of duty the first time is when Denzel Washington looks at Vigo Mortensen after being sent down to the mess hall, that look he gives him, like the I thought we were buddies. Yeah, the something something fun Clausewitz. Yeah, like that <laughs> moment was like was so devastating. Yeah, the little time that Denzel has to simmer in the officers' mess is the time when he really kind of unpacks his thinking on this, which is like we don't know shit. Like we have one thing that says let's launch but we don't really like we have also reason to believe that they also said something else to us and if what they said is don't launch act after all the thing that will happen is we'll launch and then the russians will launch and then everybody will be nuking each other because we didn't fucking check our email man nuclear holocaust yeah he gives he gives sort of his treatise on mutually assured destruction it's a pretty compelling argument. And, and like, I think Cobb has been a little bit, like, not that thrilled that he is on the side he's on. Fuck you. Because he's, he's a loyal dude and he's loyal to Captain Ramsey, but he just didn't like the way Ramsey acted in that scene. And he's, like, one of the few kind of high-status characters that got to see all of what went down between Denzel and Hackman. So, like, while Gandolfini is just pissed that somebody else is in charge of the boat now, Cobb saw why that happened. And while he's not, like, he has no no major love for, for Denzel. And so uh, Denzel has, like, surreptitiously given his skeleton key to Rivetti, the, uh, the sonar operator. And Rivetti comes and... Uh, Repunches the guy that that likes the Mobius Silver Surfer and breaks Denzel and Cobb and the other no to launch officers out of jail. They uh, they put together their own little retake the boat club and uh, they get some they get some guns and they like sneaking around in the in the sewers of the submarine and uh, and basically get up to 
up to the command center just in time for Denzel to yank the captain's firing key out of the computer because Vigo has has like decided not to pull the launch trigger himself. And so Hackman is like is like frantically opening the safe that the little that the little joystick that launches the missiles is inside of. <laughs> and like he gets it and he like literally is like pulling the trigger right as Denzel pulls the key out. Such such fun editing. Like, oh man, is it fucking tense. This is redundancy again that is visiting itself on the captain in a super frustrating way. Yeah. And for the amount of kilotons that this ship is capable of delivering, like, it really makes you think about how easily the Enterprise is able to shoot torpedoes at something. Right. Or, like, yeah. the surface of a planet. Like, it is a captain giving an order and a tactical offer, officer hitting a button. If that it, is it. If you've ever, That's all the thought they give it. If you've ever accidentally deleted an email on your iPhone... Like, that's basically how easy it would be for Worf to slip and launch a fucking torpedo, right? Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see the the Star Trek equivalent of Crimson Tide. Yeah, to see Riker and Picard have the same argument that Denzel and Hackman have in this movie. Yeah. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. I mean, I don't think it could be Riker and Picard because it's pretty much a relationship killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know... Somebody on. So some you're ship. advocating O'Brien and Keiko have that? Well, they always have that. Yeah, that's every night. It's what they call redundancy. I know about redundancy, 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 redundancy. The Captain Ramsey team heads back up to the uh, command center, and they basically have the classic Quentin Tarantino Mexican standoff up mm. there, and um, and the the radio is like just coming back together, so. So Ramsey says, "All right, um, we can we can sit here for three minutes while we wait to get this EAM. Smoke if you got them, and we'll see what it is. And while we get it, we can talk about some horses. Yeah, just give me an old paint." There's a contrast here that I wanted to call your attention to that I'm sure you noticed, which is when uh, when Captain Ramsey hits his analog stopwatch. Uh, Denzel Washington sort of shoots out his arm and looks at his Casio digital <laughs> as another f- way of underscoring the whole classic versus contemporary mode of thinking. It is such a flashy move on Denzel's part, too. It's maybe the flashiest thing he does in the movie. He is such an eyes actor um, that it's easy to forget his physicality. And little flourishes like that, I think, really make a big difference. He is... That is a strong-ass choice as an actor. Like He emphasizes like, his words with some fists sometimes. Like, he... Uh, <laughs> the way he runs, like, everything about him, I think... Uh, God, he's just the greatest. They have their discussion of Lippin's Honor Stallions and... Uh, and, you know, the Tarantino counter is just rocketing up in this scene. Uh, when Denzel says and at birth they're not white they're black you know they're intercutting between this you know like between the kind of the chill Gene Hackman puffing away on his Cuban cigar and the sweaty Denzel sitting entertaining him with this totally idle horse talk and and Vossler like panicking trying to get the fucking radio put 
put back together. They're like connecting leads and getting getting something connected, and then the screen is full of static, and then like they start getting little blips of like, oh, there was text there for one second. And we are really, really close. And they get it. It prints out. Zimmer, Zimmerman and Westergaard like like bring the printout into the command center. They bring the little uh, little plastic card and break it up and and authenticate the message. Message is authentic, Captain. I concur, sir. Denzel agrees that it is. I concur, sir. And uh, Hackman announces to the ship that they've been told to set condition 2SQ, which means we're not nuking anybody today, boys. Put the nukes back in the tubes. And uh, he has this great moment where he says, Mr. Hunter has the con, and he walks, and it's like, a long tracking shot as he walks past all of these officers that have been caught up in this shit and walks by himself down the stairs in this puff of cigar smoke with the light coming up from below. He submerges himself, doesn't he? Yeah, man. He takes himself out of the fight. Yeah. It's one of the images that I always remember from this film. They overcrank it a little bit and slow it down in a way that I don't think that they've changed speed on the film at any point up until now. It, it makes it a little dreamlike. Yeah, and it's subtle. Yeah, I mean, we've just had this tension and release, but the issue remains, what do they do now as a matter of policy? <laughs> so we cut to Pearl, where we see a very official-looking meeting taking place with... I mean, this has been a film that's been full of great actors, and we get treated with one of the greatest at the end. Uh, the great Jason Robards. Yeah, he's got like a uh, like a board game worth of ribbons on his chest. He has wooden limbs. <laughs> he's he's saying like you know like in a lot of ways you were both right and you were both wrong, and also he's like I'm gonna tell you what this panel has decided and Denzel is like uh <laughs> <laughs> I have not given my testimony yet, and he's like listen listen bub. I've known Captain Ramsey for a long time, and if he if he if he's saying bullshit, this will be the first time I've ever heard of it. So why don't you let me finish my thought, and uh, you can you can raise a complaint afterwards if you really feel like you need to. And uh, and what they decide is like Ramsey is going to retire early, and Denzel is going to be given a command. You could argue that he retired the moment he started walking down the stairs. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, and fuck you, I'm out. Right, like, he he fucking gambled and was wrong. And, you know, like, Hackman plays this character so perfectly because he really is wrong, ultimately. Like, he's not so wrong that he's evil he has he has good reason to believe what he believes but the way he behaves is wrong it's it's his it's the way he deals with the situation that is right. is the is the mistake he made he was wrong but he was so confident in his convictions that he was not humiliated in being incorrect right and i mean like this is a character that like he's the captain of a boat and he was fucking aiming a pistol at one of his sailors' heads. Yeah, I don't think he should have gotten off scot-free for that. 
I think that's super fucked up. <laughs> right, that guy's got to be like, wait a second, wait, wait. <laughs> what do you think the trip back home was like for that guy? Like, <laughs> do you think he ever ran into him in the mess hall or or in the corridor? Like, <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, he 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 runs into him in the corridor, and the dog is peeing, and then he's peeing. <laughs> <laughs> Ramsey's like, I'd like to invite you to dinner, son. He's like, no, thanks. <laughs> it's the teen on The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> the last little beat of the film after uh, Jason Robard says, You've both created one hell of a mess. Is uh, Denzel and, and Hackman outside the... Outside the uh, the like administration building hackman is getting his dog back from the guy who's standing on the lawn with it right next to the keep off lawn sign (laughs) and uh hackman's like you were right i was wrong i'm stupid you're smart you're the best i'm the worst uh you're very good looking i'm not attractive yeah the rules don't apply even to bear (laughs) Smartest dog in the world, Adam. Yep. And and what Denzel was right about was that the Lippenzahner stallions are born in Spain, not Portugal. Hans Zimmer enters from side frame, <laughs> conducts the orchestra into full swell. I mean, you could say Hans Zimmer is as much of a character in this film as anyone else. Yeah. The fucking score is so good. I mean, like, it's it's a great score that's, like, patriotic without being gross about it, but they also use the... Eternal Father strung to save uh, yeah. late motif every time they need like a moment of solemnity, uh, which I think is it's like the that's like the official song of the Navy, right? Yeah, and you know whenever a submarine submerges, you're legally obligated to <laughs> play a Russian men's chorus hymns, you know. Yeah, the uh, like if you don't have some guttural dudes singing soulfully uh you're fucking up you know like we laugh but i wouldn't want it any other way like like it works because it, it's supposed to work it's great yeah and the uh, try not to get the chills during those scenes no it's I impossible i i uh i sanded i'll down... shoot an ensign if you don't get the chills during those scenes <laughs> i sanded down the edges of a board using the goosebumps on my legs yeah yeah <laughs> And then there's this, like, totally apocryphal note at the end that as of January 1996, primary authority to fire nuclear missiles lies with the president and not with the captain of the boat. <laughs> Which was, like, you know, today, like, at, at the time, that was like, whew, that's great. <laughs> and right now, like, the comparison is, like, we, we were talking to Dr. Loomis about uh, Jason being killed, yeah. and then we cut back to where Jason's body is supposed to be, and he's gone. Like, yeah. It's a horror film ending. <laughs> Can we give it back to Gene Hackman? <laughs> he seems a little less unhinged. <laughs> I would rather the real Gene Hackman be in charge of our nuclear weapons than than who we've got right now. Yeah. Good lord. Yeah. I also just like uh, being married to an attorney who does a lot of like helping people not get themselves into trouble type work. Uh-huh. Uh the decision Denzel makes to hear the panel's recommendation without an attorney present 
to Ooh. argue on his behalf is just like, oh, dude, no, 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 no. Eey. Yeah. <laughs> Bad decision. That might be the biggest leap you're asked to take in this film because he's got to be expecting to be railroaded. He's been railroaded the entire film. Yeah, I didn't learn anything from this experience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in order to get leniency for aiming a pistol at one of his crewmen, he, in as much as he can, transfers his command to Hunter. Yeah. Like, I guess that makes it okay. Doesn't make it for that guy who had a gun held to his head, though. No. Yeah, like, Den- Denzel has to walk into into Board of Inquiry hearing and look at the, like, panel of whites and the fucking white guy that he had the huge conflict with and be like, Oof. this is not fair, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not looking good. You know, I know why we have to do it uh, for the tension of the story, but you don't get shown any of the crews back into port or leaving the ship as you got them boarding the ship. And man, that's gotta I be would some have awkward liked times. to have seen some of that. Yeah, like they're three or four days away from home. There's sort of a lot of movie we don't see here. Yeah. I mean, but that I think is maybe the most brilliant part of this film. And I think maybe in a lot of ways, the the thing that is most similar to Trek is that it lets you imagine the entire universe that this takes place in without needing to show you any of it. Did you like this movie, Ben? Fucking love this movie, Adam. Yeah, one of my favorite movies. Oh man. It's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a comfy pair of slippers, man. Like it's full of great actors. It's it's tip-top filmmaking. It's it's, it's not got a too great smart. Score. Like it doesn't feel like eating your peas ever. It's just fun to watch, you know. Yeah. You know what? I mean, you say it's it's not smart, but it is a thinker. Like the the central conflict sm- is intellectual. Yeah, it's not too smart. It's not yeah. a it's not this ain't an art film and it's not embarrassed about not being an art film. And like I yeah. I like movies that uh, aspire to more than this and uh I like watching them, but I don't like rewatching them as much as I like rewatching this. Real treat to see Hackman and Washington together. They both have the careers where they are able to share films with other A-list actors, but this specific combination, really great. One question I want to ask you, Ben. Yeah. Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! I did, Adam. My drunk Shimoda is the character named Lawson. He's uh, one of the enlisted men uh, who is probably most memorable in the scene where he boards the bus and Gandolfini makes him drop and give him 20 because he doesn't remember <laughs> the German from uh, the enemy below. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he has like a, a number of scenes and he's one of the guys that buys it with Steve Zahn in the Bilge Bay when they're trying to get the, the leaks sealed. But uh, he's got like a, a great scene in this movie where he's like hanging out in the crew quarters, dancing to Martha Reeves and the Vandellas Nowhere to Run. He is the character that has the most fun in this movie to me. And uh, in that way, uh, embodies the spirit of Jim Shimoda. He's the Shimoda of this film. There's no question. So you agree? I concur, sir. I absolutely agree. I mean, there are there are 
people in this film who display some Shimoda-like tendencies. Like, for instance, the two guys who escort the captain to his quarters. Oh, sure. And confine him there. Like, there's that moment of levity where they're like... <laughs> Where, you know, the moments where you break character are Shimoda moments. And that was a moment where they, like, let the guard down and they were like, holy shit, what are we doing here? Yeah. Like, there's some Shimoda-ing to be done. For sure. And those two guys do it, too. But, yeah, I mean, if if you have to pick one, it's it's him. It's the dancer. Yeah. And I get the feeling that they were hazing him for some reason. Like, he was doing that performance thing as, a, as an initiation. Like, I that might be headcanon to me, but... Like, people are whipping him with the towels. I think that was another reason I thought he was being hazed a little bit. Was like, that seemed to be a little bit locker room hazy. Yeah. he He's he's the character that you can, like, do the most imagining about. Like, I feel like, um, you know, for for all that Steve Zahn does to make an impression in this film, like, I feel like Lawson is a character where you're like, man, like, I feel like I kind of know what that character is about. I know what his struggle is. I know, like, how scary this all is for him. Like, and yeah. and the fact that he is one of the casualties of this conflict is uh, is kind of perfect and and, like, makes it all the more tragic. There is the moment in every sub movie where they've got to close the hatch with guys inside and it's no different for this film. It is as affecting as it ever is. And it is more affecting because it's him. Yeah. Like, like so often it's the anonymous six crew members drowning right. below deck. And all but, you get you ha- to hang your hat on is them like banging against the glass that wouldn't be there in the Right. In the door. And that is, that is a horror that is terrible. But you don't get the banging in this version. Instead, you get the familiarity. And that is that is an even more horrible way to experience it, I think. More effective. Yeah. Well, Adam, uh, this is an unusual and special episode. And I have uh, an email here that I want to read some parts of uh, from one of the many, many, many listeners who helped us float the buoy. Uh, listener Michael sent us an email and he is like buds with a guy who works on a nuclear submarine and sent some anecdotes that I think are pretty amazing. Uh, would you like cool, me to, let's hear to read some of this? Yeah. So, uh, the first, uh, anecdote and, uh, and I'll, uh, I'm not going to like go through all of this cause I don't want to like. I'm sure that working on a nuclear submarine, you're not really supposed to talk about much. <laughs> so <laughs> this is all secondhand. Take it with a grain of salt. Maybe I wrote this myself and it's fictional. <laughs> but uh, the the deal is, uh, he says, that hot bunking is a thing. Like the the typical sub has half as many beds as there are sailors. So... If you are at work, there's somebody sleeping where you sleep and vice versa. And uh, he says that they play a game called hide a shit where somebody shits somewhere in the in the sub, like uh, like somewhere where you might not find it, like somewhere where you wouldn't go very often. And uh, if if word goes out that there is a shit hidden, like like it's kind of important to find where it is and get rid of it. Oh God, <laughs> that doesn't sound fun at all. Yeah. So here's another game that uh, that does sound kind of fun and pretty hilarious, uh, uh, which is called 
how deep have you jerked it? <laughs> Which is um, like how deep below sea level have you have you jerked it? And if uh, if you're like new to a boat and in a in a small room and 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 you and you realize you're below like a certain like max depth that you've been at, you'll be like, hey guys, I gotta, I gotta run. <laughs> I'll be on holodeck four. <laughs> Yeah, you're going for the big leagues on that one, right? Yeah. The most leagues for jerking it? Yeah, exactly. So Wow. Here is It's sort of like the anti mile high club. Yeah, in in many ways it's a sadder and antithetical mile high club. Sadder a sadder, more homoerotic mile high club. Yeah. Um <laughs> So here's the third and final and most horrifying of these anecdotes that uh, that listener Michael sent in. So there are different types of nuclear weapons on these boats. There are ones for taking out cities, and there are like smaller uh, ones for taking out more tactical things. I guess like bases or whatever, and. Um, and the big ones, like the city, the city killers, are two key deals. Where like the captain turns a key, and mm-hmm. the fire control turns a key. And he says that it's like not like I, it, the film makes this stuff up, but uh, he says that it's like not super different from what's depicted. Mm-hmm. Um, but the smaller like tactical ones, you can just fire if you're in fire control, and you only need the one key, and you train on like sim simulation equipment in in port like on dry land they have like the fire control room built in simulation so that these guys wow. can drill on this shit and there is a law that says that the equipment that you drill on has to be identical to what you would use in service so that like there are no surprises when you're mm-hmm. when you're actually in a live fire situation that makes sense so he got like and you have to like periodically get certified on these things and he was getting recertified on the fire control computer in texas he is uh given the like key to do the fire control on the simulation and walks out with it and a few months later he's back on a submarine and they do a firing drill and he like tries out this key that he did on the simulation on the real thing and it fucking turned. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Isn't that scary? <laughs> like I wonder if you just put that key right on your keychain. Like like with your car keys and your house key right. and stuff. Like yeah. just anonymous an anonymous pack. I have that key. I totally have like one key on my keychain where I'm like, I think this is from when I stayed at my friend's place in Austin, but it might be something else. I don't remember really. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Good stories. Yeah. Thanks for sending those in, Michael. I know you're listening because you uh, you helped back the show during the Max Fun Drive. Yeah, our thanks to Michael and everyone else who made this very special episode of Greatest Gen possible. Yeah, um, it is an amazing feeling to make a show for people who care as much as the people who care about this show. And I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you too much, Adam, but I think it's really changed us as people, you know? Like we have a feeling like we're putting something out there into the world that's like making 
making people's days better and to to feel that coming back in this way is a real honor and uh something we take really seriously like we really appreciate uh how much support we have gotten from this community and what a, and what a great community has grown up in uh in and around this show like it's it's uh it's so amazing you're absolutely right i mean uh, this project hasn't been easy at many points. It's still as much work as it's ever been. But every every note that we've ever received that said, um, "I've been going through some shit, and this and your stupid jokes are a bright spot in my day or week." Like it uh, it means as much as as anything else that I've ever personally done. And it's you know it's one thing to. Uh, toil in obscurity on work that you find important, but um, it's a real life changer to give as much time and effort to something that means so much to so many people. So um, I am as ever grateful for anyone out there who enjoys what we do here. So thanks. As I said to my wife recently, this is the most gratifying experience I've ever had. And she says, what about uh, getting together with me? And I said, oh, yeah, you're all right. But, you know, <laughs> this is also great. <laughs> How's therapy going? <laughs> it's a very expensive proposition, Adam. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I guess we could do uh, we could do a standard show close if you want, Ben. Uh, if you'd like to talk about this very special episode, you can always use the hashtag greatest gen. Uh, do we have a special hashtag for... This, I guess we do. It's float the buoy, isn't it? It sure Hashtag is. Hashtag float the buoy. Yeah. If, you, if, you listen, if you've listened to this episode and you want to talk about it, you can use that hashtag over on Twitter where I'm as, I'm there as at Cut for Time and Ben is there as at Benjamin R. There is a great Facebook group and a great uh, Reddit group that uh, are dedicated to the show. Both are greatest gen. And uh, I should... Uh, should get in the habit of shouting out the wiki, the Greatest Gen wiki. If you go to greatestgen.wikia.com, has nothing to do with Crimson Tide as of this <laughs> recording, but maybe it will now. Uh, and uh, we should thank Adam Ragusia for our music. Who else do we want to thank? The uh, the 2001 new and upgrading donors. Yeah, yeah. This episode wouldn't have happened without you guys. So thank you very much. Yeah, and like you know the. The, the thing about doing a show like this is we are we, we are not previously famous. We don't come to this as comedians who have a track record. So, you know, taking, taking us on as a show was not unrisky for our network, MaximumFun.org, you know? Like, they are signing up for putting some resources into what we're doing in terms of you know, supporting the show and, you know, trying to trying to help us grow it and trying to connect us with, with audience. And um, when when we have showings like we did in the Max Fun Drive where they can see tangibly how much people care about this show, uh, it, it, it really seals the deal for them, you know? Like, they are super excited about how, how well our show did as we are as well. So uh, thank you. For the vote of confidence, thank you for giving us a an air of legitimacy. Thank you for helping us cover the uh, the costs of making this, and, uh, and thank you thanks for, listening. for removing 
almost all of the buyer's remorse <laughs> that, uh, that Maximum Fun has about our show. Yeah. So uh, with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And, uh, you know, maybe one day we'll also be back at you with another review of a submarine film. Who knows? Yeah. I like that idea. Let's do it again. Let's do it again, buddy. May I suggest that we float the buoy, sir? Very well, float the buoy. Float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy. Keep it a watch, float the buoy, 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 float the buoy. Keep it a watch, float the buoy, 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 float the buoy. Keep it a watch, float the buoy, float the buoy, float the buoy. You ever watch Star Trek? Little ducks, there's trouble in Russia, so they called us, so they called us. There's trouble in Russia, so they called us. Little ducks, there's trouble in Russia, so they called us, so they called us. message means our target package could have could have changed mr hunter i've made the decision i'm captain i'm captain i'm captain of this boat now shut the fuck up shut the fuck up shut the fuck up shut the fuck shut the fuck shut the fuck up captain national military command center knows what sector we're in they have satellites looking down on us to see if our birds are aloft and if they're not then they give our orders to somebody else. That's why we maintain more than one sun. It's what they call redundancy. I know about redundancy, 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 Mr. Hunter. Both the boots, both the boots, both the boots, both the boots. Keep it a watch, both the boots, 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 both the boots. Keep it a watch, both the boots, both the boots, both the boots. This is my boat! Both the boots, both the boots, keep it a watch, both the boots, both the boots, both the boots. This is my boat! Shut the fuck up! Keep it a watch, both the boots, both the boots, both the boots. This is my boat! Shut the fuck up! that we float the buoy, sir. Maximumfun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.